Okay, so Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is kind of a turning point in the book. I think Brother Alex mentioned that a couple weeks ago. It really is. Um, Jesus' ministry, primarily the, the ministry that he's been um, recorded uh, doing by Matthew, has been in the up in the northern part of Israel called Galilee. And now he's turning from Galilee to begin to head down toward Jerusalem. And really, this is leading to the climax of, of the book and, of course, the climax of our Lord's life because He came to suffer and to die and to be glorified. And so that suffering and that death was where He is headed now. He's headed for this final sort of showdown and clash with the rulers that be in Jerusalem. And that's from this point on in the book. That's basically the direction that he'll be going. But before he goes south to Jerusalem, he's going to make a trip up north to the furthest point north that he'll ever be in his earthly ministry um, to this city that where it'll be recorded in the text here. And it is there at the ends of the earth, so to speak, that his apostles will make the greatest confession of faith that's been recorded in this book. And that's where we are today. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Actually, we'll really look at verses 13 through verses 19 here this morning. And... uh, Take note, first of all, of the setting where this all happens. It takes place, what Matthew says, up in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a city in the far, far north, uh, up um, uh, near Mount Hermon in the farthest northern reaches of the, uh, the country of Israel. And this is about as far as you can get from Jerusalem not just geographically, but also um, spiritually. Because this city has a long history of paganism and idolatry. Back in the Old Testament days, this city was a center of Baal worship. Of course, you're familiar with the false god Baal that plagued the people of Israel. I mean, the worship of Baal plagued the people of Israel uh, for much of their history. This was an epicenter of Baal worship. Later, in the period sort of between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the period of 
of Greek domination of that area. Uh, it was called Peneus, which was named after the Greek god Pan, sort of a rough kind of country god, a shepherd, uh, shepherd's god. I think he had like horns like a, like a goat and played the flute. You've probably seen depictions of him at some point. In fact, a, a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to visit Israel, and we went up to Caesarea Philippi, and we saw this area that's still called Pan's Grotto, where there are the, the remnants of a Greek temple to Pan. This was a, a major center of false worship back in those days. And then, of course, by the time you get to the era of the Romans, uh, which is Jesus' time, it's still a sort of quasi-religious center, but now it's given over to the new secular religion of the empire. And as if you were in the Sunday school hour, you saw that some of the Roman emperors were revered as gods, and there was actually a temple created there in Caesarea Philippi to honor the Caesar and, uh, and, the, and the gods that were the Caesars. And so people were continuing, really, to use this place to worship every god under the sun but the one true and living god. But it was in that most pagan of places, farthest from Jerusalem in every sense, that Jesus was most clearly identified. And that happened in response to two questions that Jesus puts to his disciples. The first is, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? The Son of Man. The Son of Man, of course, you know, was Jesus' most common self-reference. It's a reference that is at one and the same time both ambiguous and highly suggestive. Because on the one hand, when you say Son of Man, like saying, oh, Son of Ungodliness, you mean an ungodly person. And when you say Son of Man, you just mean a, a person, a human, a son of, of men. And so on the one hand, you have that, but on the other hand, you also have Daniel chapter 7, I believe it is, that Daniel sees this vision of what he says is one, quote, like a son of man, but who is given entrance to the throne room of heaven, comes before the Almighty on His throne, whom Daniel calls the Ancient of Days. Here is a Son of Man coming before the throne of heaven, but He's coming riding on clouds like God does. So here is the cloud rider, yet man coming before the throne of the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man a kingdom that is global and eternal, such that the world has never seen before. So here is a man, but an exalted man, in the standing, as it were, in the place of God Himself. That's the vision, I say, that's highly suggestive, that forms the background for Jesus' adoption of this term, Son of Man. 
And so he uses this term, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the answers are varied, of course. Well, some people say, you're John the Baptist, right? Uh, you remember somebody else who thought that he might have been John the Baptist? Remember Herod thought that maybe John had come back from the dead because Jesus could do all these miracles and he had a, a following similar to John and they were preaching a message that sounded identical and, and so he thought maybe this is John the Baptist. So many people thought that. Or he, they said, well, some people say, Maybe you are Elijah, the kind of the Elijah returned from heaven. You remember the story about how he went up into heaven in the fiery chariot, and here he comes back again. Um, and of course, this was a common um, belief that God would send Elijah in, in the end times again. And in fact, Jesus had himself had acknowledged that by saying that John the Baptist had come, quote, in the spirit of Elijah. And so many people said, well, maybe Jesus is, is John the Baptist. You know, there's all this talk about John, so, uh, or, or uh, Elijah, rather. Uh, and others said, well, he's at least one of the prophets. Maybe he's Jeremiah or one of the, one of the prophets. In other words, the people, the people around him, and this I find fascinating, actually, they, they clearly knew that he was some kind of holy man sent from God. Uh, the people who saw him, who saw the miracles that he did, could not deny that he is some sort of holy man sent from God. In fact, remember, even Nicodemus, even the, the Pharisees had to say, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one could do these miracles except God sent him, Right? So very clearly, these people held him in high esteem, and yet their thinking still fell short of the glorious reality of who our Savior was. And so Jesus asks a second question. Not who do people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And I tell you this morning, listen, that's the most important question you will ever answer in the entire history of your life. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you believe he is? You know, people have all sorts of ideas of who Jesus of Nazareth was, is. Remember a number of years ago, I saw a uh, video, sort of man on the street kind of interview thing done in New York City. Um, by a group who were asking people on the street the question, who is Jesus? And here are some of the answers that, that people all over the streets of New York City gave. Well, somebody said, well, he's a white guy in a beard. Somebody said, he looks like he's from the 60s. <laughs> somebody said, well, he died for our sins so we could be saved. And in my religion, that means we can mess around as much as we want. And as true, long as we're truly sorry, then we're saved. Somebody said, I'm, he's like a reason to believe and to continue on in your life. Somebody said, I think Jesus is just a story made up by somebody. Uh, could have possibly been a real person with something special, but not like the story says. 
Somebody said, there's definitely something special about Jesus. Now, the kind of things that are special about me and you and, well, anybody. Somebody said, well, he definitely had good morals and beliefs and possibly had some sort of special gift. One guy said, he seems like some kind of Gandhi type guy. Somebody said, he had some superpower. I don't know. I believe in many. One lady just said, uh, he was Jewish? Somebody said, look, I think he's inspiring for a lot of people, so that's really it for me. Another said, I, uh, it's a, ma- a make-believe story that's got blown out of proportion. And finally, one person just said, I don't know. I don't know Jesus, Jesus very well, so... If you ask the world around us who Jesus is, there are all kinds of answers that people will give. I want to ask you this morning to answer in your heart as you hear my words in this sermon, who is Jesus? Who do you believe that the Son of Man is? And when Jesus posed the question like that, well... Good old Simon Peter jumped in there with the answer. And for the whole group, he says, verse 16, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's a pretty good confession of faith, amen? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is probably the greatest confession of faith that was ever uttered by the disciples, certainly up to this point. Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. And of course, there were many messiahs, small m messiahs, if you will, anointed ones in the course of Israel's history. This is a, um, an act of consecration that would be performed on people who would be priests. Kings were anointed, prophets. So these kinds of spiritual leaders of the people, they were the anointed ones. They were the leaders and the deliverers, the ones who would lead the people into um, spiritual flourishing before God. But Jesus is not merely a Messiah. He is the great end-time deliverer. He is that one who was prophesied so often in the prophets, that sort of shepherd king in the mold of great David, who would come and shepherd and lead God's people into the greatness and the glory that God kept promising that they would experience. This is the messianic hope. And Peter identifies Jesus clearly as the one in whom all of those hopes are centered. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of God understands the biblical promises of the Messiah. Because you think about one of the greatest messianic promises in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, was given to David himself, who stands as kind of the, type 
for which the Messiah will, the, the true Messiah will be the reality. To David, God said, I will raise up your son to establish my kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. These kinds of texts must clearly have informed Simon's thinking. Of course, what Jesus has taught them has clarified this, or like Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. You know that that's one of the most crucial messianic psalms, highlighting the interplay between the conversation between God the Father and God the Son in the sending of the Son into the world to accomplish the purpose of the Father, right? Psalm 2, great, great psalm. Go read Psalm 2. But in Psalm 2, God says to the Messiah, or to quote, the anointed one, He says to him, you are my what? You know it? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So all of this teaching, this Old Testament background prepared them to understand, or they should have understood, that the Messiah will be none other than the Son of God. And unlike God's small s son, Adam, made in his image, who fell from that image, and unlike God's firstborn son, Israel, the nation, who stood typologically in that place, this son of God would be everything that a son ought to be to his father. Loving and trusting and obedient and faithful. Everything that you and I should have been before God. This is the one son of God who would live up to the name. And in this place of foolish idols and false gods, Simon says, you are the son of the living God, the true God. Not Baal, not Pan, not the Caesars of the empire. You are the son of the one true God of heaven. He knows Him. He confesses his faith. You know the Lord Jesus. You know Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Would you affirm that faith publicly and fearlessly? I hope so. I believe so for many of you, most of you. That's a joy. It's a great thing, this testimony. What a confession it was, amen? Just an amazing confession of faith. But lest we think too much of Simon Peter himself, that he's just smarter than everybody else or more spiritually uh, minded than all of the rest of humanity, we're reminded that apart from God, none of us would ever see that and know that and confess that. The Lord pronounces Peter to be blessed by God. Look at, He says, you're blessed, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, son of John, another variation. You're blessed, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. If Simon Peter understood clearly who Jesus Christ was, 
It was because of the kind mercies and the revelation of God the Father. The Bible tells us this all throughout the Scriptures. Jesus Himself said back in chapter 11, verse 27, No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal it. Let me tell you today, if you know Jesus Christ, if you know who He is and you know Him personally, then you are blessed by sovereign mercy and you should fall down on your knees and give God thanks and praise that you can see because by nature we're all blind. But God has blessed us. Amen. God has been kind. He's opened our eyes. He's opened our hearts. And He'd done that for Peter. Jesus said, God the Father has revealed this to you. It didn't come from flesh and blood. You didn't figure this out because you're exceptionally smart. This is the kindness of God. And now, just like Simon Peter has declared who Jesus is, Jesus is going to make a pronouncement about who Simon is. Or rather, who he will be. Look at verse 18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on the earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a quite a, uh, an astounding statement to make about any human being and uh, one that deserves a, a lot of attention. It, uh, it really is parallel to what Simon had just said. Jesus, you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. Now Jesus says, Simon, you are the son of Jonah, and your name will be Peter. Simon, you are Peter, right? You are going to be Peter. And uh, he renames Simon, just like he renamed Abraham from Abram, Sarah from Sarai, and Isaac Jacob, Israel, right? So the Lord is continuing to create His people and speaking His people into existence, so to speak. He gives Peter the he gives Simon now the name Peter, Peter, which is in Greek Petros, which is a masculine form of Petra, which just means rock or in Aramaic, which is probably what they're actually speaking, um, it's Kepha, or what our Bibles sometimes translate it, transliterated as Cephas, same name, Peter or Cephas. So Simon is his given name, and now his sort of nickname is Peter or Cephas, a rock. Now you may have heard, as I did growing up, that Peter is from the Greek word petros, ending with an S, which means a little stone or a pebble. And that's a reference to Simon. Simon, you're a pebble. But when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, he 
he uses the word Petra, ending with an A, which is a reference to a huge boulder or a huge rock. And that, in that, Jesus was referring not to Simon, but to himself. Again, you may have heard that, as I did. What I, I, the most careful evangelical linguists recognize that that distinction doesn't seem to hold up in biblical Greek, Koine Greek. Um, that that distinction is probably derived more from apologetic interests against the Roman Catholic Church than it is from linguistics. And in addition to the linguistic evidence, this distinction between Petros and Petra seems to kind of undermine the context itself. Take a look at, at verses 18 to 20 again, 18 to 19. And I know there's a little bit of teaching now, but take, you know, stay with me for a moment. Um, Jesus says, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, not but on this rock, but and on this rock, as if there's a continuation here, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It seems a little bit hard to understand how Jesus is shifting the emphasis from Peter to himself, I'm the rock, and then back to Peter, because he says you, singular, um, will have the keys to the kingdom. So he's, there's just a lot of going back and forth that doesn't seem to me to be probably what's going on in the context. All right? Um, so I think that when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, we don't have to say that that's not a reference to Peter. Okay? In other words, I think that is a reference to Peter. But notice, here's, here's, I think, the key. Jesus is talking about the church being built on this rock, Peter, but he's referring to Peter in his role as public, verbal confessor of the faith. Peter in his role as one who bears testimony to Jesus Christ. This is exactly what's happening in the context, right? It's Peter's declaration of who Jesus is that prompts this pronouncement by Jesus. It's Peter in his role as spokesman for the entire apostolic testimony, which is seen as the foundation upon which Christ builds his church. And we've seen that this is not just Peter who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We already saw it back in Acts chapter, I mean, in, in Matthew chapter 14, where after seeing Jesus walk on the water, the, all of the disciples confess, truly, you are the Son of God. And in fact, they would all bear this eyewitness testimony to all of those who came later. So the Lord is identifying Simon as Peter, as the rock upon whom he will build his church. Peter is the rock in the sense that he is the witness to Jesus Christ who will serve as the solid foundation for the church. 
We already saw back in Acts chapter 7, Jesus said, the, the, remember the parable, if you build your house on the sand, what happens? The whole thing collapses. So you need to build your house on the rock. Now he's calling Peter the rock, and he's saying that on this foundation, on this solid rock, I will build my church. Peter then, as the apostle who confesses the faith on behalf of them all, as one whose bearing testimony is foundational to the new assembly of God's people. On this rock, I will build my church, my assembly. Most of you know that the word church is from the Greek word ekklesia. And ekklesia, you may not realize, is used throughout the Greek Old Testament to refer to the assembly of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. But now, it's as if Jesus is beginning anew, for He is laying a foundation. So, this is the start of something, right? That's what you do at the beginning. You lay a foundation. And He specifically calls it, My church. This is My assembly. And in fact, there's a kind of an unusual Greek word order that emphasizes this is my church. So when Jesus talks about the church, it is both a continuation of God's people from the Old Testament, but at the same time, it's something radically new. There's a continuity with all that's come before, and there is a discontinuity. It was revealed, this assembly of Christ is revealed in mystery form, in typological form throughout the Old Testament. But it's awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ for its true inauguration. All right, now that's a whole bit of theology that'll stand you in good stead. You may have no idea why now, but if you'll hold on to that, it'll be helpful. All right, now... Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And Peter then will be foundational for the building of that church. Are you all still with me? Okay, because I know sometimes when I'm teaching, right, I'm I'm waiting for him to tell a good story now so I can kind of wake up. Don't lose it. Peter will be foundational for the building of the church. But it's not Peter alone. Note this, that it is all of the apostles. And the proof for that comes in several cross-references, some of which we read earlier in the service. Isn't it interesting how earlier in the service ties into now? That's sort of helpful, isn't it? All right, so pay attention next time you come for all the service. Pay attention to what you sing, because you know it'll come back. So, how do we know that it's not just Peter that is the foundation of the church? Well, we know because of passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, where the Scripture says that the church is, quote, built upon the foundation of the apostles, plural, and the prophets. Or like Revelation chapter 21 that we read earlier, where the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem are inscribed with the names of all twelve apostles. These men, these special hand-chosen men, unique in the history of the church, that first generation of followers of Jesus Christ, His inner circle, 
become the foundation, along with the prophets who worked in close connection with them, they became the foundation for the New Testament church, Christ's assembly. This is why 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28 explicitly enumerates the gifts that the risen Christ will give. Paul says he will give first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. So Christian teachers work, like my work today, the work that I'm doing here in the pulpit, preaching to you, my work as a Christian teacher is resting on top of the foundational work that was laid by the apostles and the prophets that worked in close connection with them to give us the Scriptures. That's why Paul said in the passage we read earlier that every person who builds Christ's church, every Christian teacher, must be very careful that he builds properly on the foundation, on the only foundation that can be, which is Jesus Christ. That he not build on another foundation, that he may not build with wood, hay, and stubble, but that he builds according to the apostles' founding of the church. Somebody says, well, I thought Jesus Christ was the, fa- was the foundation. Is it Jesus or is it the apostles? And I think the answer is probably yes. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 does say that no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid. But I think metaphors are flexible in the Bible. I think we can recognize that. So if you're asking, is Jesus the foundation or is he just the cornerstone? It's like asking, is Jesus the lion or is he the lamb? Is he the priest? who offers the sacrifice to God, or is he the sacrifice itself? And the answer is that that the imagery can shift. So he is the cornerstone. All of the, the apostles are foundational for the church, only in so much as they are in line with that great cornerstone that was laid. If you want to really, you know, sort of bring the illustration to that sort of point. But in a sense, you could say that the apostles as well are the foundation of the church. Our ministry here must be built on the apostolic testament. This is huge. It's huge for a number of reasons. I preached a while back. I won't preach the whole sermon again on apostles, but uh, this is this is really important. So the apostles who were uniquely tied to Christ were foundational. And the encouragement that the Lord gives to Peter and to all of his apostles here is that when Christ builds his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell. The gates of Hades. This is Old Testament terminology to refer to the realm of death. Death will not stop my church, Jesus says. Death will not, and and of course, death is Satan's domain, right? Death will not stop the church. I mean, they can kill Peter, and they can kill James, and they can kill the rest of the apostles, but the church will continue. In other words, there is a foundation that's going to be laid, but Jesus is not going to stop with just a bare foundation. He's going to continue to build. First Peter says, 
all of his people are like living stones put on that foundation until once all of his elect are built up into the whole structure, then Christ comes to dwell among his people, God with them in their midst. And we read about that throughout um, the scriptures and particularly in, in Revelation 21. So we should be hopeful that the church will not falter and will continue to take territory from the enemy. The strong man is bound. Christ is plundering his goods. And that's going on while we speak as the gospel is being preached to all the world. Well, then the Lord further elaborated on Peter's historic role in the church. Notice verse 19 now, specifically. Last verse, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is an incredible statement of authority. Having the keys to the, to the house. That's, a, that's, quite, that's quite an authoritative thing. right? You give someone the key only if you trust them with your house. You give them the key to open up to whom they will and to keep out whom they will. Peter did have a unique role in the opening up of the gospel. And all you have to do is read the book of Acts to see how that played out. Because in Acts chapter 2, what happens? They're gathered together for the Jewish feast of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes on these guys. And especially on Peter, we're... we're He's specifically mentioned as one who stands up and begins to preach. And when he preaches, boy, the Spirit of God falls upon the people. And many are converted and come to Christ and are baptized that very day. 3,000. And then you move on, you keep reading, and you come to Acts chapter 8. And remember, Jesus had promised that the gospel would go forth from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. And in Acts chapter 8, the gospel comes to Samaritans. And in fact, so many Samaritans are confessing faith in Christ that the Jews down in Jerusalem say, we've got to see if this is true, if this is real. And so they send Peter as one of the men to go up and to confirm the faith of these Samaritans. And when he does, when he recognizes that they believe in Christ just as truly as the Jews down in Jerusalem, then the Holy Spirit falls upon the Samaritans. And then you go to Acts chapter 10 and you see that it's Peter once again that God has in a house and he gives him a vision of the great sheet let down from heaven. We all remember this vision from Sunday school, right? Uh, all the flannel graph with the pig, you know, the, the animals all hanging out of the sheet. Lord, these are unclean. And the Lord says, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. And he sends him to proclaim the gospel to Cornelius, and the gospel begins its entrance among the Gentiles that will be unlike anything that the world has ever seen before. The nations will come to the table, and this Holy Spirit comes again. So again, Peter over and over again is used as the tip of the spear, the, the one who begins to see the gospel goes go forth. Now, the clarifications that you were expecting. None of this means 
that Peter was the first pope. This is not what the Scripture is teaching. None of this means that Peter has greater authority than the other disciples, in fact, the other apostles. In fact, later, um, I believe it's in Galatians, isn't it, where we read about Paul actually rebuking Peter at one point? It certainly doesn't mean that Peter was infallible, because all you have to do is look a couple verses later. Look at verse 23. What does he call Simon there? <laughs> he calls him Peter here. What does he call him there? Satan. Okay, yeah. That's not an infallible pope, for sure. This does not mean that Peter alone will have the authority in the church. In fact, in chapter 18, in a, in a chapter where they're ironically arguing who will be the greatest among them, uh, Jesus makes this same pronouncement about the keys of the kingdom and binding things on heaven and earth, but he uses the plural to talk to all of them rather than just talking to Peter specifically. And of course, that same authority then is wielded by churches today as they rest upon the foundation of the apostles in what they uh, in what they bind or loose. None of this teaches that Peter will be succeeded by a series of men who will take his station, a series of popes who will all carry his own authority. There is no scriptural support for these things. There is only the tradition of the Roman church. In fact, I want to ask you, when you're building a house, how many times, how many foundations do you lay? You lay it once. And once you've laid the foundation, you move on and you build your house. And that, I think, is exactly the way we're supposed to think about the apostles. This was a once and for all unique thing in the history of salvation. God, Christ, chose these original men and their close associates, the prophets, to lay the foundation upon which we all build. That foundation is their confession. Their confession began with just this simple statement, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But of course, that doctrine was attacked by all kinds of false teachings and needed all kinds of clarification. And so the apostles continued to clarify and clarify and clarify. And they wrote letters and they, and they, um, they, they gave instruction to other prophets so that they could clarify. And those things became for us the Holy Scriptures, the, the Scriptures of our New Testaments. So it's a little bit like, I think I used this illustration a few months ago, it's, a li it's like the founding of our country. There was an institution called the Constitutional Convention, and this group, this unique group of men gathered together once and only once in the history of our country, and they created a foundation for us. And the foundation that they left us was the United States Constitution. And so our country is supposed to be built now on that foundation that they left us. Well, the apostles and the prophets have left us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. They have left us the foundation of the Scriptures, the Word of God. And only on that foundation can the church be built. Only on that foundation that rightly confesses everything that the church should know and believe about Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is saying to Peter and the apostles. And he further says to them, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He gave to Peter, and again, 
to all of the apostles the authority to bind. This is the same term that's used for the binding of the strong man back in chapter 12 and for the binding up of the tares to be burnt in chapter 13. To Peter, to the apostles, is given the authority to bind and the authority to release, to loose. This is a statement about their eternal judgment. John records that Jesus said to them this. Now listen to this. Kind of a a pretty parallel sort of statement. He says to his apostles, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. But if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now this wasn't the apostles' will that created forgiveness or kept forgiveness. This was the apostolic recognition of what Christ Himself was doing through His specially chosen men. And and especially in terms of people's response to the gospel that the apostles were preaching. In fact, we must never say that churches today can definitively determine who is saved or lost. Rather, we should say that they recognize and make public what Christ has already determined about who is saved and lost. So, in fact, if you look at your text, all right, look back at verse 19. Even the apostles' binding and loosing here was reflective of what God Himself knew and determined. In fact, if you have an ESV, some of you may not, but if you do, look down at the footnote, and there's an alternative, more literal translation. Notice it? He says, whatever you bind shall have been bound, and whatever you loose shall have been loosed, as if it's God's action that's really underlying. It's the determinative one. Their action is reflective of that. Now, you can speak about it in in such an authoritative way, and he does, because the apostles have that kind of authority. And, And in a secondary way, any church that stands squarely on the apostles' testimony about what we should believe and how we should live, they also have this kind of authority to make pronouncements about who is saved and who is lost. And churches do this all the time. Nevertheless, the church, acting on the apostolic testimony of the New Testament, when it exercises church discipline, or when it receives someone into membership through baptism, it makes a pronouncement about that person's soul. And this is why we should, as a church, take church membership and accountability and discipline so very seriously. This is where that idea has its roots and has its foundation. The kind of authority that Jesus gave to His apostles to rule His church. And secondarily, to all of us who stand on the authority of the apostles and the prophets. So, Peter and the apostles then played a unique foundational role in the life of Christ's church. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Let me do my best to just draw to conclusion here with an application. I think it means that true churches today should carefully and faithfully confess the apostolic faith. 
Churches today should carefully and faithfully confess the apostolic faith. A confession of faith is a verbal, public affirmation of what the church believes about Jesus and what they don't believe about Jesus. Sometimes you have to say what you don't believe just as clearly as you have to say what you believe because of all of the false gospels out there. In other words, the church should go on record in terms of their faith and where their faith is placed. The apostolic churches, um, I I say this in the genuine sense, not apostolic as in the denomination, the apostolic church, but I mean true churches built on the foundation of the apostles are not doctrinally minimalist. In other words, we don't say, hey, doctrine divides. We just want to love everybody. So let's downplay doctrine and just be involved about like, you know, doing good for people. All right. The church is built on the apostolic confession, a confession of faith. We can't just say, hey, we love Jesus around here. That's all, that's our whole creed and, and motto. We just love Jesus. Well, the, the question then is, well, what Jesus? Who is this Jesus that you love? What does it mean to love Jesus? What does it look like to follow Him, right? And all of those things are revealed for us in the apostolic testimony of the New Testament. We must be about this. We must continue to be concerned with doctrine. We must be able to articulate and confess our faith publicly and verbally and to defend the doctrines of our faith. That is essential if we would be the kind of church that Christ says He would build. And secondly, if we would be ruled by Christ, we must be ruled by the apostolic Scripture. Don't take that for granted. People, some people don't believe that. Some people believe that you can be under Jesus, but ignore what a lot of the New Testament says. We are bound by the apostolic testimony because of Christ's choosing of those men to lay the foundation of His church. No one should ever say, well, I believe in Jesus, I love Christ, who is blatantly disregarding the teaching of the New Testament. Christ's authority is given to these men. To disregard them is to disregard Him. One of the earliest false gospels that the church had to deal with was the heresy of Gnosticism. You all have heard of that probably. Gnosticism. These were people who, the the word means knowledge. They believed that they had special, secret knowledge. And the problem with the, the Gnostics were, they wanted Christ, but they rejected the apostles of Christ. They wanted a Christ and a sort of Christianity, quote unquote, not taught by the apostles. And they would claim to have this secret knowledge and wisdom about Jesus and teachings of Jesus that weren't possessed by ordinary Christians or the churches that were founded by the apostles. But they had their own way. A non-apostolic Christianity, if you will. A Christianity that taps directly into Jesus and sort of bypasses the apostolic testimony. What they were actually offering was a Christ and a Christianity, so to speak, 
that was reformulated in terms of popular Greek philosophy, and which, in fact, the apostles warned against, at least a kind of a proto-Gnosticism in a number of passages in the New Testament. Um, there were even, even writings that later Gnostics held as being the true testimony, um, so-called Gnostic Gospels. Perhaps you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas or something else like that. Um, and the problem is they conflicted with the apostolic testimony. And in, and in some cases, in the, in, the, in the age of the apostles, were refuted by apostolic testimony. This is why in the issue of the canon of the New Testament, one of the most important questions about what books are canonical, what books are inspired, is their connection with apostles. And, and a big uh, question about, uh, that, with, that relates to that is, is when the books were written. And so that first generation, that first century of the church, the apostles themselves helped to uh, disseminate their writings to to uh, promote one another's writings and to refute those things that were going around supposedly in the name of an apostle. And this becomes the foundation. That New Testament canon, the 27 books that we call the New Testament, become then the foundation, the New Testament foundation for Christ's church. Today, the same thing is true. It's not just the ancient Gnostics, okay? This is not just history. This is live. Because today, there are people who want, quote, unquote, they want Jesus, but they want to have him without the apostolic testimony about him. They want to pick and choose various sort of sayings of Jesus from the Gospels, you know, kind of like some of the red letter stuff. Not all of it, but some of it anyway. Uh, but we could do without Paul, because he's pretty, um, he's way behind the times, and he doesn't understand our modern sensibilities, right? Christian feminism, support for the LGBTQ movement, even just classic religious liberalism, all of these rely on a form of Christianity that supposedly isolates Jesus from the apostolic foundation, the apostolic testimony. To reject the apostolic testimony of the New Testament is, friends, to reject Jesus himself. So let us never have a part in that sort of cut and paste Christianity. Well, I like this part and I don't like that part. I know what the New Testament says, but I don't think Jesus would want me to be unhappy. The whole apostolic testimony bears Christ's inherent authority. If we would submit to Him, then we must submit to them, that is, to the testimony that they left us. So, study the Word. Build your life on the Word Check everything again and again. In your thinking, check it, check it, check it again and again on the basis of the Word of God so that you can build your life on the rock. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so easily led in our world away from the truth. And we thank You for choosing these men and for inspiring them with the fullness of the Holy Spirit so that we may have your very words and build our faith on a true and solid foundation. Bless you for that, Father. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to continue to build our lives on the Word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.